Hey there, we're the West Slot Pirates and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Well, gentlemen, the uh, trees have no more presence underneath them. Everything's been opened. Hopefully your recycling bins aren't too full of wrappers and boxes. Um, you know, the tinsel starting to fade a little bit after as Christmas is wound down. There's really only one more thing to look forward to, and that's New Year's Eve. Um, My trash can's not full enough right now. <laughs> <laughs> can I ask a random uh religious question sure (laughs) i was i was at a doctor's office earlier today um is is a hanukkah tree a thing no it's not because there because there was a hanukkah tree in this doctor's office it was like a spray painted a, a, a tree that had been spray painted white and then it had um a, a number of like silver ornaments and menorahs and Jewish stars, et cetera. Et cetera. I thought it was thought it was odd, uh, but I, I I didn't I didn't know whether or not this was a thing. It, and it's not. Apparently, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> Especially because right. Hanukkah was at the beginning of, of December. Um, I that, that's a whole other podcast we could go into. <laughs> can, we, can we just talk about Utah here for a sec? <laughs> hey, I mean, speaking of speaking of religious was, and holy wars about, and whatnot, and, and in a handy pivot, let's talk about the state of Utah. Yeah, so New Year's Eve, Northwestern v Utah in San Diego. Uh, we are just a few days away from kickoff, and you know, there's. Definitely been some news and notes that's come out of there before we uh, kind of dive into our full preview. Uh, on the injury front, I mean, Jordan Thompson and Nate Hall missing the game definitely hurts us from a defensive side. But, you know, we, we've talked all season about how D-line is our strongest position. Yes, while Jordan Thompson is the beast of our interior line, uh, and it'll be hard to replace him, we, we do have the horses to do it. Um, Nate Hall, we're taking a very interesting uh, path to uh to replacing hall we're not going with chris bergen as had been happening most of the season but jared mcgee moving up from safety to linebacker uh that really speaks more for the the play of travis willick honestly you know the way he's been playing at safety you know we want him out on the field and mcgee's always been sort of a bigger safety and moving him up to linebacker doesn't change his assignments too too much this to me just comes off like a huge flex on our part. Um, it's you've got, I mean, just as you said, first of all, Travis, Travis Willick is quickly developing into a fantastic safety. And I think part of it is it's, it's tough to take him off the field. You don't really have a good reason to do it. Um, but at the same time, Jared McGee, you know, you're talking about a guy, this will be his final game, big time safety, um, and like you said, a bigger guy, I'm sure we're going to see plenty of Chris Bergen in this game. Oh, I think for sure. part, part of it is, is just the optics of giving McGee the start that he deserves. Um, but it's sort of our way, I think of saying we have so much talent at safety right now that we can take Jared McGee and move him down into the linebacker core. Um, it's, I think it's, it's just awesome. It's, it's our way of saying, look, McGee, as good as he is, we can't take Willick off the field, so we're going to move McGee down to linebacker. Um, obviously, 
not to make light of the fact that we're missing Nate Hall and Jordan Thompson. Um, these are both guys who have been fantastic for us. And I think Hall is a guy who you look at the surgery that Hall has coming down the line. And we've talked about this on previous pods, but I kind of am like, what has he been playing with these past couple? You know, what has he been gritting out the past couple of games um, to get through? We talked about how him, you know, having the targeting penalty and having to sit for the first half of the Illinois game was almost well, a blessing in disguise. And, and and that's the thing, you know, with him not playing at all in the Illinois game, his final play as a Wildcat is that BS targeting call. That is rough. Um, and, and he d- doesn't deserve that, obviously. And, and I mean, obviously too, you, he's going to be there. He's going to be part of it and everything. And it stinks for him, but he's, but with that said, as good of a player as he is, between McGee and Bergen, um, and the what, two hundred and thirty some odd tackles that Patty Fisher and Blake Gallagher generated this year, um, I think the linebacker core will be all right. Thompson's here, well. Here, here's the thing about McGee. I, I just want to jump in on this. Sure. Is that I, I think we're playing him less as a, as a linebacker and more as the third safety and as as a, as a nickelback. This is what we did with um, Kyle Kier, Kyle Cairo for three years um when we had as mcgee emerged as a a, an additional safety behind Cairo and godwin igubuike we started to bring Cairo up into um he'd almost line up at the line sometimes and it, it allowed northwestern to basically play nickel out of their base defense and not lose anything against the run. And I think that's exactly what they're going to be doing in this setup as well. Uh, McGee is a great tackler. He's excellent against the run. Willick has emerged as a fantastic all around safety, like you mentioned, John. And I think, I don't, I don't think this makes our defense stronger because Hall was so good, but part of what made Hall so good was his ability in coverage. And, Putting Chris Bergen in that spot, especially against a team like Utah, that's that's going to be RPO heavy. I love this. I love this approach. I think it makes a ton of sense. And uh, while we'll probably see Chris in the game, I, I think I think this this spot is uh, Jared's to kind of flourish in and see what he can do with it. You make a you make a great point because arguably that that roster grouping. Uh, Really, the main difference, right, is that instead of, let's say, Nate Hall on the field for the entire game, maybe it's going to be Blake Gallagher on the field for the entire game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we very well may have been playing two linebackers, and Jared McGee and Travis Willick may have very well have both been on the field for the majority of this game. So, right, exactly. Utah's going to team that's going to spread it out. They're going to do some RPO, and right, it's that kind of flexibility. Like, we may have been, in, in effect, in a four-two-five look. And you also make the great point that just like Cairo, you know, this also may be the lineup that in our current iteration gets the maximum amount of talent on the field. So it's right. There's not there. There's not too much negative to be said about this other than that, Nate, you know, we're not going to have Nate Hall. In the case of Thompson, it's simultaneously he we're talking about a guy that I mean, kind of as almost an a banner carrier 
of the character of the defensive line as a unit. And we've been going on and on about how deep this unit is, right? This isn't a sack heavy unit, yet it's an awesome unit. And I think we've read, right, was it Pro Football Focus has him as one of the highest grading defensive linemen in the Big Ten, I believe. Yeah, he, he was on their he was on their first team Big Ten in terms of top graded players for the year. And I just that's the one place where I've seen Thompson get um consistent kind of credit and recognition throughout the season. He was he had a dynamite senior year. Um he's been great his whole career since he started playing as a freshman. He played next to Tyler Lancaster for a couple seasons. I thought really came into his own this year. He doesn't have the stats, but he's been a disruptor all year. And the thing I'm wor- the thing I'm worried about is the run D. And I know I know our D line is stacked, and I, that, that, I know that's where you're going to go next, John, because we've got a lot of really talented guys there. But I'm just I'm just worried about what his loss means for the run D. Well, it's to that point too, right? It's I think. It's and we'll get there in a second. It's really interesting to juxtapose the injuries we're carrying into this game with the injuries that Utah is carrying into this game. Yeah, I was I, I was I was just going to go there. Um, yeah, I think and I think that's the difference. And, and I'll give you the pivot, Sam. But I think the the difference is we've been hit in a couple of places where we have good players who aren't going to be taking the field for this game, but in areas where we have a lot of guys who can plug into that situation. And I kind of feel like Utah has been hit in a couple areas where they don't have that ability. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, we, we made mention that their starting quarterback, Tyler Huntley uh, broke his collarbone back in November. Um, uh, All reports are that, you know, he's just waiting for final clearance to play. um, And he, he will probably, we'll probably see him in the game. Um, that that's going to be really interesting. I, I'm interested to see how uh, you come back from a broken collarbone and and play super effectively. But I think more. Did, did you did you watch Daniel Jones I, earlier today? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's hit and miss. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. He was pretty. He was pretty hit in that game. Yeah, yeah. He, he was a little. He had a little bit of a rough first quarter. Then the rest of it was like right smooth sailing. Uh, but I, I think you know where Utah is probably more hit because Jason Shelley did go in and he played okay. Um, let, let's not dig too deep into the the Pac-12 championship game, which was just a travesty to any and all who watched it. Uh, but the fact that they're out, their start running back Zach Moss and Britton Covey, their top wide receiver who got hurt in that Pac-12 championship game, uh, both of those guys are out. So you know, yeah, it's next man up, and you know, no one only plays one running back. So, you know, Utah has been dealing with the, the Moss injury for uh, a few weeks. Um, but, you know, losing their, their number one wide receiver, you know, having Hundley probably coming back, definitely a little rusty. You know, we'll see how he'll be able to play. Uh, I, I just think that those are uh, probably a little more critical positions than, you know, our, our guys that are on the defensive side. Yeah, I won't, I won't debate that. I mean, especially – you know, early on in the year when Huntley and Zach Moss were, were both kicking butt, I mean, there were people that were talking about this Utah team as as being a, a I mean, as being on their way to to a Pac-12 championship. Um, obviously, they made it to the championship game, but they were putting up forty points consistently with those guys. They they uh, they went. Uh, five straight games, four straight games, um, Stanford, Arizona, USC, and UCLA putting up 40. Now we know some of those defenses are, you know, leave a little bit to be desired, but that's not an easy stretch of the calendar either. And 
the, you know, the, these guys were, re- were really good. Huntley. What's interesting to me about Huntley is that, um, he's pretty solid across all of his stats, uh, two to one pick to a TD to pick ratio. So that's a potential opportunity for Northwestern. The big one though, he got sacked on 10% of his dropbacks. That's a lot. And that is, um, that kind of becomes like the critical factor. If we're going to disrupt their RPO game, if we're going to, um, cause I think our offense is going to struggle to move the ball really effectively against Utah. We've played, you know, tougher defenses. We'll be able to, to put some points on the board, but, to keep them in check and give our offense a chance. Um, we have to get to Huntley. That's going to be the most critical part of this game. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really helpful in that regard, um, that he doesn't have Britton Covey in this game. I think Covey's the kind of guy, it's funny. We've sort of gone back and forth on this, right? Like there is the classic kind of wide receiver, who has given Northwestern the most trouble over time, right? Like your Felton Davis, your, your big guys, right? Big guys, we have trouble talk, like deep threat guys. And Utah's really made their bones this year with a different kind of receiver. Covey's 5'8". And basically, he's a guy who runs good routes. They get him in space and, and he tries to make things happen. He's also a guy who was used in jet sweep looks a bunch. He had 200 rushing yards before he got hurt at a nine yards, a carry clip. Um, so he's a dangerous in space kind of guy. And you think about the way that, you know, Mike Hankwitz tends to try to fight offenses, right? Like we, especially knowing that Huntley is coming off an injury, we all know exactly how this is going to work, right? We are going to start with cushions. We're going to go to that aforementioned, um, drop back sack rate that Scuzz just referred to. We are not a heavy sack generating defensive line. But what we can certainly look at those stats and assume is we are going to be collapsing the pocket and shrinking the pocket. So given that Huntley's most likely going to be uncomfortable back there um, and that they're missing their top receiver, we're going to be rolling guys off and saying, okay, so can you complete passes? Can you move the ball down the field? I feel pretty comfortable because of everything we've done up to this point and the fact that they have a thousand yard back not playing in this game, that they're not going to have a heck of a lot of success running the ball. So then it's going to go to the throw and you're going to see those soft cushions that we're all so familiar with. And then we're going to move. And it's funny. I, you know, we were talking about Duke. We talking about Daniel Jones, a, a profile to me in which this goes bad for us in terms of Utah's offense would mirror what happened at the beginning of the Duke game. And what happened at the beginning of the Duke game was Duke executed really well right out of the shoot and got points before we could adjust and close the door. In the second half, they did nothing. And part of that was uh, Jones going down, but also it was us adjusting and shutting them down. Well, my kind of nightmare scenario would be Utah coming out throwing some quick slants over the middle we miss a couple tackles and they turn those into large gains that's the kind of thing that Covey specialized in and that's why I'm glad he's off the field the guy who's kind given, <laughs> I was give, about to say <laughs> given that the guy who has me nervous is Jalen Dixon yep <laughs> because he is the Covey clone and he averages 21 yards a catch 
Now, he only had 23 catches, but you figure, given that they are the same kind of profile of player and given that Covey is out now, Dixon's role is going to be very expanded here. So it's kind of like the, what, the Quadre Hill kind of thing. I'm looking back and thinking, oh, this is a guy, they may try to use him in jet sweeps. They might try to get him, you know, in space and see if he can break a long play. Um, and given that we will probably be giving up underneath stuff to start, that's the thing I'm most worried about us clamping down on, especially early on. So I'll tell you what, it's fun. You, you mentioned Duke a couple times, John, and we, and we've, we obviously joked a little bit about Daniel Jones. They played earlier today. They hammered temple. Um, as I was watching that Duke temple game, a, it was giving me flashbacks, uh, to the beginning of the year when, uh, and last season as well, when when Jones and TJ Roming just annihilated Northwestern, and I think we were better against Roming this year, but still, like the guy was, uh, I think I think he at least got a, a a long TD on us. Utah on offense, especially, and a little bit on defense because their secondary is so good, but on offense especially reminds me a ton of Duke, in that Dixon slash Covey are the the TJ Roming type. You've got. A solid run game. I mean, th- this is th- this is probably the biggest benefit for us is that Zach Moss was fantastic. The the thousand yard back you mentioned, John Zach Moss. He, he missed the last three games. He was averaging over six yards per carry on the season. He's replaced by Armand Shane, who averaged four point five on the season. But when you look at the last three games when he was the feature back, Shane only averaged uh, just above three yards per carry. That's a really good sign that w- that that we can stop the run. Um, that's going to be our primary focus. We're going to give up that underneath passing like you talked about. But what what terrifies me is that this is the Duke blueprint. We face some other RPO t- teams during the year. Um, Purdue, obviously. Uh, Minnesota, we did a pretty darn good job against. Illinois as well. Nebraska um, gave us a whole lot of problems. I guess the, the the big thing that I keep coming back to, while well, I talked about Tyrone Huntley, you know, he's got pretty decent stats across the board. He ain't Daniel Jones. He does not have that type of, of accuracy or uh, or arm. And he's not Adrian Martinez either in his ability to run around like crazy. What he does have probably is a better offensive line than either of those two schools. So, I, I, I mean, I guess at the end of this, I just come down to the fact this is going to be a tough game for Northwestern uh, and for our defense. Um, I, I think we can at least contain these guys, but they're going to put up somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 20 to 30 points. And we got to be able to score on the other side to keep up with them. So he, here's another aspect that we really should talk about. And that's their special teams. Uh, their kicker is, is a stud uh, 24, 29 uh, on the season um, seven of 10 on field goals between 40 and 49 and three of five from beyond 50. He's got a 55 yarder on the year. So, I mean, you're looking at a situation where they can kick a field goal from the 30, or, you know, even the 35-yard line, whereas we're not even going to trot either Kuban or Luckenball out there unless we're, like, well inside the red zone. Yeah, and that's that's as worrisome as anything because this definitely figures to be a low-scoring game. It certainly could break out that way. It's funny. <clears throat> I look at the profiles of, these, of our two teams, and I, I think I'm putting so much stock in the injuries that Utah is dealing with as something just as a, a dividing line, because I think there's so, there are so many similarities between these two teams. And it's funny, 
as similar as we are, I think, this year, the similarities really go back a long way. It's crazy. If you look at the last four years, including this season, Utah has 35 wins and we have 35 wins. If you go back eight years, including this season, which also, which also doubles as the eight years Utah has been in the Pac-12, Utah has 62 wins over that period of time. We have 61 wins. So we're talking about teams with a very similar level of success. And it's funny if you, if you carry it over this season, I think if you look defensively, Scuzz already talked about it, um, earlier, you have, really a similar defensive profile. Utah has put together a great defense this season. They do not generate sacks, just like we don't generate sacks. They have a couple of linebackers who have picked up a tremendous amount of tackles. Uh, what is it? It's Chase Hansen and Cody Barton have combined for about 230 tackles, almost the exact same amount that Blake Gallagher and Patty Fisher have combined for. Um, Hanson has 22 tackles for loss, but only, you know, five sacks. Bradley and a, their defensive end has seven and a half sacks. Those are the only guys with really any sack production on the team. And yet they get it done. They get it done with good, solid defensive line play, plugging up holes and linebackers who really get downfield and make tackles. That's the same thing that we do. So it's funny, like one of the other things that jumped out at me, and I know Scuzz is going to, you know, jump into the advanced stats on this, on you know, in terms of both teams. But I was really surprised to read the strength of schedule numbers um, because, as Sam and Scuzz alluded to earlier, if you look at Utah's schedule right off the bat, I mean, your eyes immediately jump to that period where they ripped off that four-game win streak against Stanford, Arizona, USC, and UCLA, but. And, you know, uh, two weeks later, they beat Oregon. But there's definitely a degree of rooting for laundry in that stretch because a couple of those teams are not at full strength right now. I mean, UCLA was a dumpster fire this year, but USC was five and seven. Um, Stanford was solid, but not, you know, not up to the level of the Stanford team we beat a couple of years ago. Um, and I think if you look at our strength of schedule, some metrics have us as one of the top 10 schedules in the country. And I think about that when I think about the pasting Wisconsin put on Miami today. We talked about this on the pod last week. Scuzz was much more in the Miami camp than I, I mean, much more in the Wisconsin camp than I was. I kind of thought the Badgers were going to get turnover chained based on what their offense had done against us. And they just went out and smoked Miami. Um, they dominated that game. So I kind of look at that and I think, well, top to bottom, you know, what was the Big Ten this year? Was it a lot better than, you know, even we give it credit for being? What about the Pac-12? Again, a lot, you know, advanced metrics are looking at this and saying, look, Utah's got eight wins, but a win over USC, a win over UCLA, a win over Oregon, these are not what they were worth in years past. I think if you look at the quality of the Pac-12 versus the quality of the Big Ten, there's a lot of similarity until you get to the top teams, right? I think you've got Washington, who I guess could claim to match up maybe against a Michigan. Um, I'd, I'd like to see that game happen, but I don't know. I think Michigan is a class above. Um, and then you've got Ohio State. I don't, you know, I don't think the Pac-12 remotely had a, uh, an Ohio State team this year. So I think, you know, when you add it all up, 
historically this year. What I'm seeing is two teams that are very evenly matched. I think Utah's numbers might be a little bit better, but I think their quality of competition might have been a little bit worse. And based on that, that's why I look and I say, you know, I think I maybe give it to Utah narrowly if they are bringing a healthy running back and a healthy top wide receiver into this game, but they're not. And I think that to me tips it for our favor. Yeah, I'm, I want to be there with you. And I, and when we first saw the line come out on this um, and granted, I thought Tyler, Tyron, I thought Huntley was going to be out uh, for this game at that stage. I thought that line was crazy all the numbers come in on Utah's side and, and even when adjusting for, for off, uh, for op competition as S and P plus is Utah is legions ahead of, of Northwestern in the S and P plus ratings. Um, their offense, 60 spots better than ours. Their defense, 10 spots better than ours. Special teams, 115 spots better than ours. Now, granted, we probably play at a different pace. Um, given the Pac-12, you also, you know, Northwestern season, you kind of have to separate it into, like, Larkin, post-Larkin, pre-Bowser, and then post-Bowser. <laughs> now, granted... Larkin, the, the, neutral zone, Bowser? <laughs> yeah. Now, gr- granted, the the opposition kind of stacks up well there as well and that like in that in that pre-bowser space like that's when we played michigan um so i I don't know like this is this is anecdotal at best it feels like our stats are maybe undervalued um but it goes without saying that utah looks on paper really really strong and i and i guess you know i want i want to flip to the northwestern offensive side real quick utah does give up gave up an average of a hundred yards per game this year. That's a really good sign. Cause I think Bowser generally outrushed opposing teams average with maybe the exception of Ohio state. I'm just thinking about that Notre Dame game where they were giving up, you know, 60 yards per game. He was, he was able to get uh, up, up over, uh, up close to a hundred. I, th- I think we should be able to run a little bit better on this team than maybe they saw from, from PAC 12 opponents. I'm confident that, uh, Northwestern, much like when they went in against Iowa, is just hammering the idea of we will run the ball, we will run the ball. Um, they're probably going to be stubborn about it. They're probably going to see. Hey, whoa, 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 know, whoa! Fitz being stubborn about an offensive strategy? What? <laughs> I, I know, right? Um, I, I, I think they're going to go for gusto on that front and and let Thorson kind of come in over the top and, and see what can be done. All, all the talk early on is about Thorson, how he didn't have a great season and X, Y, Z. I mean, I think that, you know, nobody's really talking about the fact that he spent the first half of the season kind of recovering from uh, an ACL injury. So, and, you I know, like... honestly, really still, cause you know, the ACL recovery is, they, they say is like a year of rehab and now we're coming up on that one year. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the one other thing that gives me a little bit of hope on the offensive side is, and this is, maybe this is a result of, you know, losing Nagel and having to shift gears a little bit. Maybe we had to simplify some things for the, for the receivers or just get some easy concepts in, but I haven't gone back and analyzed the tape. So forgive me if I'm way off base on this, but 
we saw like maybe two thirds of the way through the season, kind of the reemergence of the slant pattern in Northwestern's offense. I mean, it's been a long time since we routinely saw that. And against Ohio State, the slant pass to McGowan was, you know, a constant theme. Uh, we saw it emerging in the in the weeks prior. That's a classic RPO look. And it makes me wonder if Fitz has embraced a little bit of communism here as we've gone towards <laughs> the end of the year. And that's the sort of thing coming into this game that won't show up like a ton on the Northwestern tape. And that, not that Utah wouldn't be prepared or wouldn't be thinking about it, but if it's something we've been working on and honing in bowl prep, that's a pretty exciting development for this offense. We've got all the tools to run it, and it's the sort of thing that is perfect when you're dealing with with an offense that can't protect the quarterback for a long time because it forces the defense to slow up their first step and allows the quarterback to make a decision based on, you know, if his offensive linemen are falling over or not. Um, so, I don't know. I'm I'm holding out hope that we might see a little bit of excitement from the Northwestern offense. Uh, we certainly did in the in the beginning of the uh, the bowl game against Kentucky last year against what was a, a very ballyhooed defense. So. I don't know. I, I'm I'm trying to talk myself into some optimism here uh, after my my bemoaning of the stats and talking about how outmatched we were on paper. So, well, stats are for um, losers. You know that, Gus. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> true. I, too bad it's my too bad that's my job. Well, that's <laughs> I am kind of like I am kind of curious. Given, I mean, you mentioned Iowa earlier. Stylistically, I know there. You know, Utah's going to do things very differently on offense than what Iowa was trying to do. But I kind of feel like from a talent perspective, I don't know, I, they feel like similar teams to me, especially defensively. I feel like Iowa's defensive character is very similar to Utah's defensive character. Um, and I buy that. And that was a game where Isaiah Bowser made a real impact in that game. And that was something that, you know, that we were really counting on. And I think to your points, guys, it's like he's performed above expectations statistically coming in. And I think if we're moving the ball and we are putting up points, that's going to be a big part of it. I think it's going to be him moving the pile on first down, us getting those five, six-yard plays, and then working that slant game. Maybe, like you said, maybe a little RPO shows up, something like that. Um, but that's the formula for us to move the ball. Again, I think anything in terms of us jumping out to any kind of lead has to be considered fantastic and real gravy. I think... Utah is a wounded offensive animal for sure. They have a pretty decent offensive line, like you said, um, but they're missing players who were real impact players for them. And I think it's reasonable to expect that we can keep them, you know, pretty low on the scoreboard. If you look at the numbers across our season, I mean, it's, it's there in terms of if you compare I think Utah's offense to a lot of the offenses that we faced in the Big Ten, there are some above, there are some below, but we regularly kept, you know, offenses of similar statistical profile to Utah in the 20s or lower. I think the question really becomes, are we going to be able to get points against this team? If we can... You know, if, if we're able to move the ball, if Bowser comes out there and he's moving the pile and we're getting first downs, then I think we could really get up on them because I truly believe they're going to have trouble scoring points. Otherwise, it's going to be that low scoring game. And certainly, yeah, the fact that they are so much better on special teams than us is a really worrisome thing, especially if this becomes a kicking game kind of situation. Um, and we've certainly seen, we'll talk about it later, but 
there have been no shortage of ugly bowl games this year where the kicking game was a major factor. And if, if this ends up being one of those, especially in that sea level San Diego air, um, then Utah will have a, a definite advantage. So um, I really think for me, the big difference factor other than Utah's injuries will be our ability to, to, like I said, move the pile with Bowser, pick up those five, six yard plays, especially on first down and, and make it easy for Thorson. Can we talk a little bit about the, uh, the Kyle Whittingham factor? I'm, I, I just wanted to go there. Yeah. I mean, everyone who's done previews of this game, you know, from like ESPN or all the national publications, that's one thing that they, everyone harps on is the fact that Utah is, well, Kyle Whittingham is 11 and one in bowl games. Um, and you know, just looking at that without really diving too deep, you know, it's like bowl games and we, and we've talked about this are just, different when it comes to like motivation and you know what what a team's looking to get out of it and it's like Northwestern has always been you know it's, when you look at the games that we've been to and the teams that we've had to play against we've always kind of been punching up right because like the top teams in the Big 10 are always going to like the playoff or the BCS or and everything else gets shifted up a slot or two so Northwestern has always been playing teams that are are better um, I, I'm wondering if that is necessarily the case with Utah uh, throughout their their bowl his, or the last 12 bowls for them. Would you like me to tell you? About I it? would, please. <laughs> so um, last year, Utah beat a relatively hapless West Virginia team in the Dallas Bowl. Um, the Dallas Bowl, which didn't exist this year, uh, we'll get to that later. <laughs> but, um, you'll recall that that West Virginia team did not have quarterback Will Greer. Um, so, uh, Utah hammered them two years, uh, the year prior to that, they beat Indiana in the Foster Farms Bowl by two. The year before that in Las Vegas, it was BYU, uh, a seven point victory against their arch rival in what was a, a very entertaining, uh, Vegas Bowl. The year before that, they hammered Colorado State. Any thoughts, Sam? No, no visceral reactions. No, I'm good. <laughs> All right. I mean, Colorado State generally not not so hot. Um, I mean, the, the years... Colorado State's been a, a medium Mountain West team, and you know they you know, when Utah was in the Mountain West, they were fairly even. You know, Utah going to the Pac-12 didn't necessarily make them that much better. So, congratulations, you beat a medium Mountain West team in the bowl game. Good, good on you. You should be doing yep. that as, as a Power Five team. Uh. In 2013 and 2012, Utah did not play in a bowl game. In 2011, uh, they went to overtime against Georgia Tech and ended up winning by three. In 2010, they suffered the only bowl loss of the Kyle Whittingham era when they got uh, hammered by Boise State. In 2009, they beat uh, California by 10 in San Diego. This would have been the year after... um, uh, who was uh, was this Marshawn Lynch in two thousand and eight? Sounds about at, right. At Cal, that did really well. Um, that actually sounds yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, in 08, they beat Bama in that stunning Sugar Bowl when nobody expected them to have a prayer, and Bama just really probably didn't, didn't, show didn't up. want to be there. And then the three years prior to that, it was Navy in the Poinsettia Bowl, Tulsa in the Armed Forces Bowl, and again Georgia Tech. In the Emerald Bowl um, out in San Francisco. So this is not a murderer's row. Um, I mean, I think with a couple of key exceptions, Boise State, Alabama, um, 
BYU and you can maybe make an argument about Georgia Tech in 2011 that generally Utah is punching down in these situations. It's interesting to me just there's so much going on here. I mean, right, in terms of bowl prep, you have one one game is a bowl, but it's against your arch rival, right? So it's like they're there's not really a question of prep there. I mean, this is a team they know so, so well. Um, and, and would have played like six weeks prior. Right. Colorado State, again, it's like a regional opponent, ex-Mountain West opponent. Um, it's funny to me that three of the bowls that you mentioned would have meant option prep between Georgia Tech and Navy. Yeah. Um, it's Which, again, it's, it's a different kind of animal. It's credit to Whittingham. Um, and then you've got... I mean, you've got Bama in there. I mean, you can't throw any shade at that. I mean, that's, I mean, yes, it was a big upset. And yes, this predates Utah being in the Pac-12. But I mean, you know, there, you can't. But, but that was also, I mean, that was, yeah, that was the, that was the Brian Johnson year. Brian, Brian who? Yeah, (laughs) they were, I mean, but again, it's like you, you've got to kind of give it to him. It's there. Yes, they, I mean, like lately they barely beat an Indiana team that was, eh, I mean, they beat up on a Will Greerless West Virginia team, but I mean, again, the, the win total is the win total. They've prepared for a diverse group of teams. You've got that Bama game in there. I mean, again, close wins are close wins. It's certainly not like terrifying when you get into it, but it certainly does speak for their ability to prep for bulls. Like, I mean, they're, they're no slouches. They're going to do their homework. They're going to know what we do. And they're going to try to take it away. And, it's not like and it, and Williams bringing the a motivated team, right? You know, he's not letting a team just kind of go there and coast and just sort of enjoy the experience. Like he brings a team there to win, which you know Fitz, Fitz does too. So that, that makes it really, really interesting. Um, you know, you can definitely see situations where you know teams are going to bowl games that they may not you know want to be at. See Miami today, um, but. You know, I, I think Whittingham is, is going into these games, bringing a Utah team that is ready to play and and ready to go. The other thing, too, I mean, to your point, there, I mean, four weeks into the season when we were one and three, Utah was two and two, and since then, neither of these teams has done much losing. So, I think I wouldn't say both of them are cresting, but these are both teams that won divisions and um, are. Still, I mean, again, we didn't have the, uh, well, relatively speaking, the gut punch loss that Utah did. That was a messy game, but Utah was in that game late. And I think Utah players will tell you they got screwed by a big call late in the game. Um, Washington would disagree, but the point is it was tight. It was a tight, ugly defensive affair, and Utah was in it. So I don't know to the extent that they're crushed by, you know, coming oh so close to a Pac-12 championship, but still, as you said, I mean, between the way they played down the stretch and the way that Whittingham has them historically ready to go, yeah, this is going to be a team that is fired up. They are they are not going to be Miami Hurricanes uh, spending all night in Times Square <laughs> or whatever the hell they did, and then barely even you know stumbling into Yankee Stadium and getting smoked. This Utah is going to be up for this. Well, that being said, I will be interested to see what the what the Pac-12 and Big Ten bowl records are as we approach our game. So between now and then, we're going to get Purdue 
Michigan uh, and Michigan State all playing on the on the Big Ten side, and then you'll get Washington State uh, and Oregon playing on the Pac-12 side. And I mean, right now, Pac-12 has lost both their games. Big Ten has won both their games as underdogs, I might add. So it's, I mean, there, there is something to be said for relative strength of conferences, et cetera. Obviously motivation, as you guys have talked about is a huge factor too, but it'll just be interesting how that, how that lines up, um, as we, as we approach kickoff, because if, if Michigan state knocks off Oregon, that's going to be a pretty big indictment of the PAC 12. I I don't think that's going to happen in a million years. Very doubtful. But let's say Washington State struggles with Iowa State, Purdue, and and Michigan hammer their SEC opponents. Um, I mean, it, now now that being said, all those things could happen, and we could go into this game, and Utah could mop the floor with Northwestern, right, or or the opposite. Like, but it's an interesting, it's some interesting uh, food for thought over the next four days. Let's let's put it this way, uh, I my days of bad mouthing. Uh, a offensively challenged blue collar Big Ten team as it prepares to play another team with really pretty uniforms are over. After uh, after Wisconsin flattened Miami, I am not putting anything past Michigan State's ability to beat Oregon. Um, I've been I've been once burned, so I'm not going to look at Michigan State's offensive success up to this point and uh, and say that it's going to prevent them from putting up points on the Ducks at this point. I don't know. At this point, until told otherwise, the Big Ten's looking pretty darn good. Uh, and anything else we need to talk about uh, for this game coming up um, before we uh, talk a little bit about some of the other bowls that have happened and will happen? Just enjoy it. It's an eminently winnable game for the Cats, albeit you know we are we are underdogs. But this is not like when we played Tennessee uh, a few years ago. Um, this is much much more akin, I think, to that Pittsburgh game in the in the pinstripe bowl and uh i think i think both teams are better than the teams that played in that game frankly so yeah buckle up let's have fun with it the the cap to what's been a really great season let's go have some fun out there boys hey man i think um i'm psyched for this one like i said i'm expecting defense first two really evenly matched teams two programs that are at the same level uh, and two teams that won their divisions and, and came very close to winning the conference. And um, I think you're going to get that level of game. So let's briefly talk about some of the games uh, we, we covered last week. Um, yeah, just sort of looking through, kind of taking a quick look. Memphis Wake Forest, that was a fun game. Came down to the very, very end. Um, Army, Houston. Woo! Wow. Oh, boy. Uh, we... We 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 said that that was all going to be all Army. We didn't expect Army's defense to score. I, they got at least two defensive touchdowns, right? Um, and if not, there was one, and then just a, a boatload of turnovers. I mean, they just hammered, hammered Houston, who clearly did not want to be in that game and was missing a lot of their firepower on both sides of the ball. So uh, Army has two losses this year. One was in. Uh, the first week of the season to Duke by 20 on the road, which especially given our own experiences with Duke, isn't that bad of a result. Their second worst loss was a seven point loss in overtime to Oklahoma. And they won every other game. 
if Army keeps this up, people are going to start to get mad about all the things we let Army do so that they can be competitive at football. Like, all of all of those things, like the U.S. Maps program and an, un, an effectively unlimited amount of scholarships, that's all based on Army not beating everybody. So I'll be really, I'll be really interested to see what, you know, like, is Army all of a sudden going to be really good like this? Are they, you know, are they going to start, like, are they going to keep putting up double digit win seasons with schedules in which they get to play a bunch of MAC teams and, you know, three FCS teams? I'm very curious how all this is going to go. But um, with that said, I don't want to grab too much because... Army was, you know, Army was under Navy's thumb for so long. You know, let them enjoy their time in the sun. Uh, Troy beat up on Buffalo by 10. Um, you know, looked like Buffalo was going to win that game. Troy came back late to uh, kind of make that margin of victory a lot bigger than I think the game indicated. Uh, Troy, Troy came back late almost like they were still in Lincoln. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Louisiana Tech beat up on Hawaii. Um Wait, do we do we talk about the crazy ass Wake Forest Memphis game? I, I kind of breezed past it, so you know if you have something to say about it, let's let's talk about it. It was ludicrous. It was absolutely ludicrous. Um, namely, that it was just it was just back and forth, uh, kind of all game long. You know, both teams ended up in the thirties here, and at the end, like Mem- Memphis had the ball deep in Wake Forest territory. Gets. Um, probably screwed out of a, what 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 could have been a pretty a fairly easy pass interference call and then on the next play um i think at an incompletion ends up ends up centering the ball with like 3 seconds left to kick a field goal and go to <laughs> overtime and then misses it with, like if there's it, it was it was just a horrific a horrific set of decisions um that that befell Memphis a team that was pretty clearly better than Wake Forest, I thought, going into this matchup, and just stubbed their toe and fell on their face. Uh, as we record this on Thursday, let's talk about uh, yesterday's games. Um, first Big Ten game, Minnesota over Georgia Tech, thirty-four to ten. I thought that Georgia Tech was going to come out just gangbusters for Paul Johnson's last game, but credit to PJ and the Flectones, man. Minnesota looked pretty good. And it makes me really concerned uh, for the Gophers next season. Muhammad Ibrahim ran for 224 yards, an average clip of 7.2, and two TDs. Again. My my goodness. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and yet, that team scored 14 points against us. And these are the things to be filing away when you're thinking about the quality of Northwestern's defense and the quality of the Big Ten as a whole. Because, yes, Minnesota, in a game where Georgia Tech was playing for pride on their coach's last game, Minnesota just flattened them um, with really no, like, no real game plan other than we're going to stuff Muhammad Ibrahim down your throat. And that's what they did for the entire game. So, um that to me just puts all the more luster on our defensive performance against the Gophers. Uh, two other games that well kind of happened <laughs> yesterday. Wait, can I set the can I set the stage? If you bought a ticket to the Cheez-It Bowl or the Surf Pro First Responder Bowl, who had the worst experience? 
<laughs> the fa- the fans who didn't get to see a bowl or the fans who had to watch Cal play TCU. How, how long how long did I wait in the rain at the old Cotton Bowl before I bailed? <laughs> yeah, because that I mean, if I got did I get sick? Like, do I have a cold now? That might I mean that might be the tiebreaker, right? Well, exactly. And, like, and I the, think fact, the, real- the fact that you know, like pe- people flew in from Idaho and Boston. To go to, you know, I mean, those are not cheap tickets, and those tickets aren't getting refunded. Um, what? And I like Dallas. I lived in Dallas for five years. It was a good place. It's not the place that you fi- fly like three thousand miles just to hang out. Like it's not a tourist destination. And um, man, I'm I'm still stunned that I get why. I'm still stunned they pulled the plug on that so quickly. Yeah, I mean. Uh, there was a really great article in the Athletic uh, about yeah, that. Yeah, Nicole Auer- Nicole Auerbach really laid out the the storm cells and like the problems that they were going to have. I think one coach was talking about, or, or one person was telling her, like, we, you know, how are we going to feed the players? Like, there's just all sorts of logistics that you wouldn't think about. I'm just I'm surprised that they couldn't. Frankly, I'm surprised I couldn't find another indoor stadium in Texas to move it to, but maybe it's just not possible to do that well, on a short term yeah, I mean, basis. That that late in the you know that late in the game, you can't just take everyone from the cotton ball and say, Hey guys, we're going down the street to Arlington. Um, everyone just catch a lift or something. I mean, you can't, re- but shouldn't you, shouldn't you be able to do that? Shouldn't in this day and age, shouldn't we be able to pivot like that or just, or Let's I mean, think outside the box people or just push the game to a day later or something like really that there's not that level of flexibility. I don't know. Um, I, but again, like it's, and of course, there's the whole added comedy of uh, Surf Pro slogan being like it never happened, <laughs> <laughs> which is just—I mean, come on! Like you honestly can't make this stuff That's up. So delicious! I love that um, so much. Yeah, I will. I will say this: I'll give credit to—I think it was the athletic director from Boise who talked about how he, you know, they—they—the they, they, athletic directors kept meeting with the with the bowl staff and the weather people to get updates and figure stuff out. And he, he talked about going back to the locker room to tell the players the news and being really surprised at how upset they were. And to me, I wonder if that's a little bit of a lesson learned. There's so much chatter and talk in the media about, you know, oh, these bowl games don't matter. There's so many games. Players don't want to play in them. Guys are skipping for NFL, blah, 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 blah. And they've missed the fact that 99% of the guys that are there, especially the seniors, getting a chance to play in front of their families maybe for the last time. Like, this matters, and it means something to these guys. And it's something that they've earned and they've worked their asses off all year for. And I, I, he seemed to admit that there was surprise on his part and maybe that it makes me wonder if knowing that in the future he would make a different decision or going into it, you know, that the bowl might say, hey, we need a little bit more of a contingency plan because this is a huge black eye and it was not fair to these players. You know, fans who bought a ticket, like, that sucks as well. But to the players especially, that's the part that really galls me. So so here's the thing, guys. I have something to say in support and then – something to play a little devil's advocate with you in support. I absolutely agree with you. I'd go one step further and say that, um, you know, it ought to be, it ought to be food for thought 
in thinking about the guys who are skipping the bowl games. Like, why is that always viewed in terms of, ah, this guy doesn't care? What if that guy really cares, and yet he still has to look and do the math and be like, my earning window of three years or whatever it is in the NFL starts now. If it's, you know, if I'm going to have money that I can put away for the rest of my life, I have to make this decision. I have to do it this way. I have to make the smart decision. These are hard decisions that should really be kind of reevaluated in a situation like that. Why do we always assume that these guys are like, you know, screw college, I'm going on? These are guys who are probably broken up about doing this, but they have to play the math and they have to to make the right decision. With all that said, Scuzz, in the context of... Players really caring and and really getting up and meaning. If I might play devil's advocate, I would submit to you the cheese it bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say the Miami Hurricanes in, in New York. But. Well, let's put it this way. Had the Miami Hurricanes had a scrimmage at Yankee Stadium, this is what it would have looked like. Uh, <laughs> Cal and TCU. Whoa, Nelly. Was this a turd? I can't even, like, wow, this was an awful football game that neither team deserved to win. Yeah, just nine interceptions. Um, two of those interceptions were on illegal forward passes. I mean, one that was the ridiculous attempted a trick play, which um, they were trying to do two throwbacks, but one was a throw forward, and then he threw it forward again. For an interception, what, the other what ha- what happens in that standpoint? Is it that d- can you decline that penalty? They did, yeah. You absolutely can that, decline the penalty. That, it, 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 hap- it happened again. Uh, Saint uh, TCU again. The the guy was at least a yard and a half past the line of scrimmage when he threw an interception, and and Cal declined the penalty. Like, no, we'll we'll take that. I agree with you. It feels weird, but like. That seems like a misinterpretation of the rule book to me. I but just, I don't I don't know it well enough. It just like on the on the on the face of it this just doesn't seem right. It's like it's like if there's an interception on a false start. You can't and they blow the whistle. Like But they didn't they didn't you, blow the whistle. I guess you don't blow the whistle. You don't blow it dead. You just throw the flag. But yeah. that's the the that's it, still it, it, really it weird. weird. But, you know, the that, winning yeah. The winning team in this game threw for 28 yards and four interceptions, and they won. <laughs> I And TCU, you look at the fact that TCU was in this game on the strength, basically, of a one-point win over Kansas in a game that they could have lost. Um, they did not deserve to be a bowl team this year, and somehow they've squeezed seven wins out of it. I just This reminds me, do you guys remember that Sun Bowl I can't, I'm trying to remember who was in it when there was effectively like, a hur, a hurricane going on during the game. I feel like that was Miami. It was Miami Notre was Dame. Miami Notre Dame. And, yeah. And, well, well, I I remember Miami Notre Dame being like 12 degrees, and the Miami. This was my rationale for Miami not playing well against Wisconsin is that they they don't do well in cold weather there historically. Yeah, I I just like this and this game they did not have that excuse this was just absolutely hideous football um and you know tcu again the winning team in this game uh there was one moment where during a timeout they literally couldn't decide which kicker was going to kick the field goal sent one guy out pulled him off the field put another guy out then pulled that guy off 
and brought the original guy back out all in the course of a single timeout. And you'll be shocked to know they missed the field goal on that play. Um, and again, this was the performance of the winning team. Just spectacular. Oh, there was uh, – you're talking about the blizzard. There was a blizzard uh, in the Sun Bowl in 2015 when Miami was playing Washington State. There was – I and they lost 20-14. to 14. I don't even think it's that. There was one game that goes ways where there were like – I'm not even kidding, like 30 to 50 mile an hour wins the whole game and literally neither team could throw a pass. Was, was Stanford I, involved in that? I wish I could remember. But, I mean, the final score was like 3 nothing or something like that, and it was just incredible. But, again, at least the weather was a factor there, and these two teams have nothing to blame but themselves. Um, but, I mean, congratulations for your seven wins, TCU. Uh, briefly, I mean, we've, we've talked about both of these games that happened today already, but uh, Duke all over Temple and Wisconsin, 35-3 to over Miami. Duke making us look a little bit better, I'll say that. Um, I mean, again, da- da- Daniel Jones put on a clinic. Yep. And, and this is what he can do. I mean, and this is a guy like, lest we forget, Duke had some rough times in the middle of the year this year, but it kind of felt like he came back a little bit too early from that collarbone and kind of as he got himself together, they got a little bit better. Um, with that said though, Duke got plowed in their final game of the season. So this is a big rebound for them. And again, it's it's big for us because, I mean, Duke's 8-5 and five with a bowl win. And, um, you know, that loss, you're talking, you know, a pretty decent Duke team. And we lost, you know, 21-7 to them. Um, again, if that was our worst loss on the season, we'd be feeling a lot better. Uh, this game was a tale of two halves, too. Temple was up at half. And then Duke scored. 35 unanswered points in the second wow. half. Um, as, and and I also did the thing that I that I hate most where, now granted, Daniel Jones threw for over 400 yards. He was 75% completion. He averaged 10.3 per, per uh, attempt. Five TDs. He did throw two picks early on, but there was one play where he hit, uh, he hit TJ Roming on a slant. And granted, Daniel Jones threw a great pass. It was it hit Roming in the hands. It was perfect timing. He you know he didn't he didn't screw it up. Roming is the one though that then ran through the entire Temple defense for an eighty five yard touchdown. And yes, it was a perfect pass, like timing wise, etc. But the announcers like as soon as as soon as they threw it, they're like, "Oh, and Daniel Jones has done it again." And that's a, it. Just drives me nuts. Like, let's celebrate the guy that is you know. 4-2 speed and caught the ball in stride and didn't miss, like did a little hippity scop, uh, uh, skippity hop to to fool a linebacker and then blasted his way down the field with his uh, athleticism. Let's celebrate that a little bit too, and not just the guy that put the ball there. Well, and speaking of guys r- running with the football, um, credit to Jonathan Taylor, um, who on the strength of his massive numbers in the Miami game for the second straight year came up just a handful of yards under two thousand. Um, and his pace at this point, I think, is beyond what the Dane train was doing um, up until this point, right? So he's got, you know, if, if he puts up a third season like this, and again, we've talked about this, I would submit that Wisconsin has, this has not been the meatiest two years on which he has built these numbers for Wisconsin. But 
a game like this where they go out of conference and pound an ACC team um, kind of further validates, if not Wisconsin's strength in our eyes, the overall strength of the Big Ten relative to other conferences. And if Taylor does put together another year like this, he will. he's probably going to be your Heisman favorite coming into the year next year, just on the strength of he's going to begin his junior year with about 4,000 career rushing yards. Um, and that alone will put him in the driver's seat. If he puts together um, another season like this as a junior, though, he's going to have a real decision because he, he, you know, were he to come back for his senior year, he would walk to the career rushing record. So we'll see what happens, but great finish to him uh, to the year. And again, you know, 4,000 yards in two years is pretty incredible considering that he was basically a Heisman non-factor pretty much the whole year. Well, let's be clear that from an offensive standpoint, this game was all Jonathan Taylor. Jack Cohn was 6 of 11 for 73 yards. Right. TD and a pick. Yeah, I think the story of, of the last two days has been Big Ten teams just doing nothing but handing the ball off to their running back and watching him just steamroll the other team. Um, yeah. And, and as we say, too, since people have been asking questions about Clemson all year, not the greatest ad for the ACC, let me just say. Um, that you know, one of your one of your supposed bell cows just got absolutely plowed. I, I do want to pivot and real quickly talk about um, you know the the rest of the games that we haven't previewed. Do we want to mention real briefly the uh, kind of updates to the playoff with the Clemson suspensions and the Alabama suspensions? Yeah, we should probably talk about that. Yeah, so the the weird one for me is the Clemson situation um, because those six suspensions were upheld today, right? Three yep. three players testing positive for I have to even is it octarine or something? Is that what I don't know? It was for something, yeah. <laughs> for for something. The interesting thing to me about this is all of the subtext here, right? Um, so it is this really rare supplement that they tested for that three guys randomly test for. But again, a big part of it to me is it's not one guy, it's three guys. And if it's three guys, it means you should be able to really pinpoint um, exactly um, where it came from, right? So there are two potential possibilities in my mind. One, the players are lying which is certainly possible, and they did know what they were getting into, and they did a really dumb thing. Um, But the other possibility, if that's not true, is one of two things. Either someone on the coaching staff unwittingly gave multiple players something, in which case someone's going to get sued, or the company that made whatever all these three guys took that did not have this thing listed on the label had it in the bottle, in which case someone's going to get sued, the company that made this stuff. And the third part of it to me is, if either the second or the third scenario are the situation, how the bleep can you suspend these guys? Because some of them aren't even looking at just a game suspension. They're looking at a a season suspension. And that's insane. Are you going to suspend guys for a season if it's clearly proven that they took something in a bottle that wasn't supposed to be in the bottle according to the label? Like, what a joke. Like, so, I mean, uh, to I me. I think that's happened. I think that's happened has. in the NFL. Absolutely. Right. Has. And that's, and I mean, like, give me a break. So it's like, I mean, this is one of those things that's going to have to be re examined. But I mean, my point is with one guy, 
there, you know, it could be up in the air. We, I, you know, like we're literally, no one can figure out where this came from. But this is three guys testing positive for something that is literally almost never, ever seen. So you ought to be able to figure out where it came from. And if where it came from is something that they were legitimately, you know, would or could have had no knowledge of, then give me a break. Like, it's not a question of them playing for the game. I mean, they should be able to play in the game and the whole thing should just be wiped clean because that's just stupid. Here's the thing. This didn't happen at Fordham. This happened at Clemson. At a school that has the resources and the wherewithal to manage every element of everything these players do. And I'm not talking about, like, you know, making sure these guys don't, you know, do bad things or watching them 24-7, but... If you think the football players at Clemson are not getting like customized supplement and nutrition right. exactly put in front of them, you're crazy. So I agree with you, John, but the idea that Clemson was using a supplement that was not vetted and ha- and like not extremely vetted, right? To me, is just BS and not plausible. And if it and if and if it is happened, it's it's just gross negligence on Clemson's standpoint. So, I it sucks for these players if if they truly are, um, if if they're if they're truly innocent of doing anything on purpose. Um, but at the same time, if like this this might be a suspension due to stupidity. Um, in in the in the notion of if there's a trainer. Or if one of these players is like, "Hey, check out this cool supplement I bought on the internet." Like that's you're asking for this, and there are there are players across. Like we haven't seen this pop up at any, at any other schools, to my awareness. And in you know, I haven't seen any Big Ten players get suspended for this leading up to a game this year. I you know, um, that hasn't been something that's been super prevalent in the NFL. So it feels like this was the sort of issue that popped up more three or four or five years ago and everybody figured out which supplements and which nutrition plans to be using. And Clemson of all places should have everything they possibly need to ensure a, a perfect regimen for their players. So this stinks to high heaven to me. And yeah, I, yeah, again, I, you know, it, it's, it is possible that the players are lying. It is also possible that they're telling the truth, and I hate that they're going to bear, in my opinion, the, the worst of this, but Clemson deserves it. Yeah. Not the players. Clemson deserves it. Well, and I think, uh, as an aside, too, I'm sure they I'm sure they weren't supposed to be taking anything. Dabo has, by, no, by this point, certainly impressed upon them the healing powers <laughs> of the Lord, and they don't need to be taking anything from a bottle. Uh, <laughs> to get to get back to where they need to be. No, as 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 our friend Chris Giannini would say, you know, this is just the Alabama program uh, coming to life at Clemson. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about. Um, Speaking the, of Alabama, though, right? Yeah. That was the that was the other part, right? Alabama has some suspensions of their own. I, I don't think they're they're quite as you know critical of players for Bama. I mean, and it was like violation of team rules, so not not anything we haven't seen before you know it's you got to be real dumb to though to to screw up going into the playoff 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's, and I mean, that's something that we've seen again and again. And, and again, I don't want to pivot, you know, I don't want to pull it back, but I, we're, we've not heard the last of this Clemson thing. I mean, I, 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 I refuse to believe we won't figure out exactly what it was that these guys took that caused this problem. And if we don't figure it out, then that's only going to make me believe that there's some real shady business going on here. To discuss <laughs> so, I mean, it's very possible that they're going to, they could appeal this and it could be overturned. Um, I think I read that that's still, still a possibility. It's not, not, the a NCAA, lot, not a lot of time for that to, to go through though. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're recording this on a Thursday night. The game's on Saturday, a Thursday night in which Baylor is now up by 10 over Vanderbilt. Uh. Oh, vomit. Sorry. <laughs> but to your point, again, how, you know, when teams like Baylor are fielding football programs, how, how worried should we really be about some guy taking some random yeah, supplement yeah, that, in a bottle? Yeah, they're bigger, that is, they're bigger that is fish a, to fry. <laughs> it's a very reasonable point. And, and before we send Eric's blood pressure skyrocketing into the stratosphere, let's uh, talk about some of the other bowl games coming up next week. <laughs> The Dabo and Malfeasance and Baylor all in the same sentence. Yeah, it's a miracle. I'm still with y'all. <laughs> yeah. So on also on Monday, December 31st, you know, besides our game, uh, you've got games starting as early as 11 o'clock Central. The Military Bowl presented by Northrop Grumman. You've got Cincinnati and Virginia Tech. Uh, they're playing that at the Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium in Annapolis, Maryland. Navy's home field. Um I'm giving you a giant shrug emoji right now. All right. I mean, I, I like Cincinnati here. You So, I, I mean, against guys, you've seen Cincinnati play up close. I mean, Virginia Tech is just sleepwalked through the whole second half of the season. Um, this is a team that lost five of their last eight, and their wins in that stretch were a three-point win over North Carolina, who's bad, and a three-point win against Virginia. Um, and, and then they beat Marshall in a reschedule to end the year. Um, I mean, this is a team that I don't know what, oh, and, and also lost to Old Dominion. So I don't know what the heck's going on with Virginia Tech this year. I mean, I'm sure from a recruiting and talent standpoint, they're probably well above Cincinnati, but I don't know. I mean, the Bearcats clearly were playing way better football and honestly, um, beat up a lot of teams this season um and you know they they took it on the chin to UCF but so did a lot of teams so i don't know they 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 lost Josh Jackson in that ODU game um it took Ryan Willis you know some period of time to get back to get in sync during that ter- period of time they beat duke they got destroyed by Notre Dame they beat duke on the road i might add by by 17 then they got destroyed by Notre Dame at home the following week. I think that took like the life out of this team. I think that had they had that game circled. Um, it was their, you know, their what was going to be their jumping off point to then winning their their conference. Um, and they got hammered by Notre Dame, and I think just the bottom fell out. I watching that. You know they they beat they had a miracle to beat Virginia like they like Virginia had to screw up in so many games to lose that game to Virginia Tech, but at this stage I don't know it just feels like they've got some momentum and they certainly have a lot of talent. Cincinnati is good but has no kicker and I don't think they've played anyone quite at this talent level um, or at least done well against a team at this talent level so. 
I just I just have no idea. I have no idea what to think in this game. It could go any way. Like, Either team could blow out the other or could go to like six overtimes. I would love to believe that, you know, ostensibly the best or the second best of the non-Power 5 conferences, that a team this good within that conference could at least hold their own against a team that is just such hot garbage in the worst of the Power 5 conferences. You know, I, I, I want to believe that the gulf is not that big, but... I guess we'll see. Dude, Wake Forest beat Memphis. Yeah, I know. I mean... I know. Uh, We'll see. But yes, I mean, this all could go very, very wrong for Cincinnati, but hopefully it won't. Uh, Moving on to the Hyundai Sun Bowl uh, in El Paso. You got Stanford and Pitt. No, No Bryce Love. I mean, you you haven't had Bryce Love most of the season. He has been a shadow of himself from last... You know, even last year, the year before was when he had the the breakout, and he just has not been the same. Yep, and it, and it probably doesn't matter. KJ Costello has been really good. Ortega Whiteside has been really good. I Pitt is not good. It's I mean, it depends what Pitt team you get, I guess. Um, I mean, yeah, they're they're uh, they're twenty four three lost to Miami's not looking particularly great right now. <laughs> within the confines of the conference. I mean, they pit throttled Virginia tech. They put up 52 points in that game. They lost to Notre Dame by five. That's their performance of the year. Um, I mean, Pitt also lost to Penn state 51 to six. So yeah. Um, if, if that pit team shows up, I don't think it matters whether Bryce love is getting off the bus or not. The Red Box Bowl uh, in Levi's Stadium, Santa Clara, California. You got Michigan State and Oregon. Um, the big news, uh, Justin Herbert coming back to Oregon for next year. I, I know that leaves a lot of quarterback-hungry NFL teams who are looking at the top of the draft to try and fix up their quarterback situation. Denver, um, a little upset, uh, but, you know, what was already thin quarterback draft class just got a little bit thinner. Uh, I guess Herbert wanted to play with his brother, which is awesome. I mean, and he's a local kid from or uh, from right around uh, Eugene, so good for him. Hopefully, it works out. I mean, he was going to be one of the top quarterbacks picked, so you know, fingers crossed, he doesn't get hurt next year and he's able to drive his draft stock up a little bit. It's not a whole lot more higher he can go, but uh, yeah, I mean, he he can't really go anywhere but down. But what it tells me is that he he wants to play with Oregon. Oregon is going to be on the short list of potential national championship contenders next year, rightly or wrongly. Um, that's that's going to be the case. And I and I think this game most likely they're going to blow out Michigan State and and boost that narrative because we talked. John, you talked ad nauseum over the summer and even last year about how the Michigan State secondary is not what it once was. No, you can yeah. throw on this team, and then Clayton Thorson threw for, what, 450 yards on this team, and Justin Herbert is going to do at least that. I think they are going to annihilate Michigan State, who has no offense to speak of. Well, the thing is, I joked earlier, right, about like juxtaposing my feelings about Wisconsin going into the Miami game with my feelings about Michigan state going into this game and how I wouldn't second guess with that said, (laughs) (laughs) if you asked me, well, in a situation where Wisconsin does blow out Miami, how do they do it? I would have been like, well, Wisconsin's D just locks down Miami's crap offense and they give it to Jonathan Taylor a million times and he just runs over Miami. 
There is check check. There's no sentence I can say where Michigan State like who's Lewerke gonna throw to? They're like is it even Lewerke? Since Felton Davis went down, this team literally just doesn't score points. I mean, seven points against Michigan, twenty three and twenty four against Purdue and Maryland. Yay. They scored six against Ohio State, six against Nebraska, and that, four. That's the real. That's yeah, the real indictment. Right. Six against Nebraska and fourteen against Rutgers. Like I mean, like they, they just have stopped scoring points, and it's not like they were lighting up the scoreboard when they had Davis. Like Oregon's defense is pretty good. It's not just Herbert. Um, they're like they're not amazing. But they're good enough to keep Michigan State from scoring points. And right, with the boost of their big quarterback coming back, I think this has got ducks all over it. And on the Michigan State side, one of their starting cornerbacks is skipping the bowl to go to go to the NFL draft. So another the hits keep the hits keep coming for the Spartans. Yeah. I think that's a good move because I don't think he was picking up good tape in this game. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the AutoZone Liberty Bowl uh, from Memphis, Tennessee. You got Mizzou and Oklahoma State, kind of a matchup of the old Big Eight foes. Oklahoma State is so weird to me because in my head, just based on games that I've watched, they're a good team, and that's because I watched them play Texas and then play Oklahoma, and they beat Texas and they barely lost to Oklahoma, and then they beat West Virginia too. And aside from that. Like, they were just trash this year. And I don't know, like, so I don't know what to say. Like, they're 6-6. Six and six. They were 7th in the Big 12. And yet they had a couple of these big wins. So, I don't get it. I This team is a total Jekyll and Hyde team. Or, or maybe they just have, like, two or three games that they give up, that they get up for. And then they just don't show up the rest of the time. I don't know. And on the other side... Going into the season, I was very down on the idea that Missouri was any good and that Drew Locke, was, uh, their quarterback, was any good in big games. And while he had some you know, some clunkers this year, no, most notably against Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama, he also played really well against some good teams. Memphis at Florida was, was probably his best outing. Um, did some things against better defenses this year, including including Purdue. He put up forty on Purdue. So uh, this this feels like the case where a senior Q, QB who's looking to make a, a statement and you know put a put a put a cap on his uh, pretty successful college career before he goes to the NFL has a real opportunity to do it against a you know non-existent defense. Six thirty Central, uh, the Tax Slayer Gear Bowl in Jacksonville, uh, NC State and Texas A and M. Um, this is an interesting one. I mean, Ryan Finley, the NC State quarterback, has been ballyhooed as one of the top quarterbacks coming out, and now with Herbert not being in the draft, he'll he'll be one of the top quarterbacks to go. But is that enough? I mean, Texas A&M has had a pretty solid season. NC State's missing like two or three of their defensive playmakers too, who are skipping this game. I, this just, this feels like a and M in a, in a cakewalk, but I maybe that, th- I mean, this is another one where like my ACC bias, where I think the ACC is hot garbage is kind of coming into play. Yeah, I agree. I mean, a and M, I mean, they were up and down too. They also played a really tough schedule. Um, yeah. Three of their losses are what uh, Clemson, Alabama, 
and wait, Clemson? Is that right? Uh, yeah, Clemson, Alabama, and Auburn. And yeah, Auburn was a little bit down this year, but um, you know, and they they beat, albeit in what was it? At how many overtimes? Seven, seven, Six? yeah, seven, seven, seven overtimes. Uh, but still, that was against a top ten team, and that was their last game. And I mean, again, it was that was a crazy, insane game. But the point is, they played well enough to win against a top 10 team in the country and you know they're carrying a three-game winning streak into this so yeah i think from a talent perspective they are twice as talented as nc state and nc state part of their record is as scuzz said based off of this watered down conference like i don't believe it so we're running long i'm just going to lean into it um so here's here's just something interesting about jimbo fisher so he's five and two in bowl games listen to the list of bowl games that jimbo fisher has been head coach for Orange Bowl, Peach Bowl, Rose Bowl, BCS Championship, Orange Bowl, Champ Sports Bowl, Chick-fil-A Bowl. This is this is arguably the second lowest profile bowl that he's ever been a coach of, wow. which is kind of stunning. Yeah, I mean that is that that's wow. That is pretty crazy. And again, like to, to the point about profile, I mean like they're he's always looking, I mean, you know. He wants Texas A&M in the top of the SEC. So, I mean, that's the goal. And obviously, I mean, they're staring miles up at Alabama. But um, every win matters for him. So they'll be going for this one. Uh, going to New Year's Day, you've got at the Outback Bowl, Mississippi State in Iowa. Um, yeah. Gag me. Yeah. This is, this is not the game that you want to wake up with a hangover and have to listen to clanga, clanga, clanga. <laughs> on New Year's Day, <laughs> almost, almost as if you're speaking from personal experience. Oh uh, well, it it's funny. The clang was so not bad in the stadium, though. That's that's the really weird thing. It just, I, mean, I think, because we were in the upper deck, I don't know. It just wasn't that that annoying. It was probably, I think, it was far worse for those watching on TV. What do you make of the game? You know what's funny, Mississippi State beat up on four of the last five teams that they played. And one of those teams was Texas A&M. Um, and of those five games, the loss was Alabama. And it's like, well, whatever, like no one's going to take that away from you. So, I mean, they've, when they had to play epic defenses this year, Florida, LSU, Alabama, they literally didn't score points. But the rest of the time, they've looked pretty good. Now, again, part of that is, you know, your mileage may vary on the low end of the SEC this year. It was pretty low. But still, I mean, they're they're coming in pretty hot. On the other hand, though, Iowa, for everything, for all their up and down this season, that they can still pull a nine-win season out of this is would be pretty impressive, I think. Um, I think, you know... They'll they'll still have a bitter taste in their mouth and feel that they let the conference get away from them this year, but still, nine wins is nothing to shake a stick at. This is kind of a big deal for Mississippi State. Outside of the Orange Bowl, uh, what back in twenty fourteen, they've not been in very many high profile bowl games, and the Outback Bowl on New Year's Day is you know certainly uh, got some some pedigree to it. I think Iowa's in for a world of hurt. Yeah, I, I agree. The, no, no, Noah Fant is not playing. I think this Mississippi T- State team cares about this game. Um, their head coach knows Iowa, having been at Penn State for two years. And 
I just I just think that when Iowa's been up against good defenses, they've they've looked awful. Their offenses looked horrible every time they've played a good defense, including ours. And Mississippi State certainly has a good defense. I think Iowa's toast in this game. At noon on ESPN, the Fiesta Bowl uh, in Glendale, Arizona, you got LSU if, and UCF. If I could Ooh. only if I could only watch one bowl game this other than ours, this would be the game that I would watch. I'm. I could not be more fascinated by this game. I mean, the fact that UCF coming in on a 25-game win streak, but no Mackenzie Milton. It's... I know. I I mean, it's like, on paper, they they don't score points in this game, but that's what UCF wants you to say, right? Yeah. Um, And, I mean, Roger Sherman made the compelling case that UCF is a playoff-caliber team. Um, and on the basis of that, this is their playoff caliber matchup. If you're a playoff caliber team, win this match, win this game. You beat Auburn last year. Do it again. Um, I mean, UCF wants this. This is what they crave. They're up for this. Yeah, they're they're going to be the dogs for sure. But but they want it. Is this a game that might change the outlook of college football moving forward? If UCF wins this. The, the call for an expanded playoff gets even stronger. If LSU wins this, then they'll be like, t- settle down, UCF. Settle down, mid-majors. Settle down, if you, group of five. UCF doesn't have to win. They just have to play close. If UCF gives LSU a good game, I mean, the, the drum is already beating so loud on this thing. We're headed to eight teams. It's a question of when. So you're absolutely right. Like, if they win, it will speed that for sure. But even if they play a tight game, it's just going to be enough to, to make people that much more vociferous about it. I I think for UCF, it's all going to come down to Daryl Mack Jr. He's, he's the QB. He threw for 350 yards against Memphis in the uh, last game of the season. After being, you know, pressed into duty, he's a true freshman, dual threat QB. He's, you know, he he fits the system. Obviously, was recruited by Scott Frost. He's good. How much better did he get during bowl prep? That's the big question. Right. Because on the other side, like it's it's an LSU's, it's an LSU's NFL offenses. Defense. Yeah, the defense is great, but their offenses. I mean, LSU's offense ain't gonna score more than. 20 points in this game um this is this is there for the taking for ucf if they want it the question is what kind of attitude does lsu come in with and now at the same time lsu's defense could score an additional 20 points and they could win this game 40 to 7 but i don't know we'll see we'll see i this is i think one problem is I don't see this being the kind of game ucf wants it to be which is a high a high scoring game LA. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be a muck it up type type affair, and right. that doesn't bode well for them. Alabama scored 29 points against LSU, and that was with LSU just handing the ball back to Alabama the whole game. So I see a I, – I don't really visualize a situation in which UCF gets the 30 points in this one. So I don't know. Can they win a low-scoring game? We'll see. But, hey. Now, that that, be, that being said, LSU's best defensive player, cornerback Greedy, is is skipping this game. Right. And that's a big That's a big loss. Sure. So I don't know. And, and all this is to say, I mean, I you know, you can't dwell on stats and matchups too much here. UCF has earned the right for you to have to take them seriously. And uh, – and they haven't lost in flipping forever. So um, LSU's got their work cut out for them. If, and, and again, I think UCF, at the end of the day, probably gives them a much better game, win or loss, than anyone thinks they're going to. 
Also at noon on ABC, you've got the uh, Citrus Bowl uh, at Camping World Stadium in Orlando, Kentucky and Penn State. Um, you know, Kentucky, their defense has been real solid. You know, Josh Allen is, you know, the real deal. Um, but am, am I correct? Benny Snell and Allen are both skipping the game? I believe I saw that. You know, Kentucky's going to believe- be missing some pieces. Right. So, I mean, that's a big loss. Now, again, we've, we, we've seen what Kentucky looks like without Benny Snell in a bowl game. <laughs> um, I think <clears throat> this one's really interesting to me. And, and again, I know this is a real stretch, but we played Kentucky, not... No, no. Snell said he plans to play. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting if he's playing. Um, but, I mean, we played Kentucky not at, at the point of recording, not a full calendar year ago. Um, and we didn't get to play Penn State this year, and that's the one that's the one big team that we didn't match up with that we didn't get a look at. The only team in the top of the conference, and I think we're all a little bit curious, hypothetically, of, of how we would match up with them. I think very similar. I think very close. Maybe Penn State would have a little bit of an edge, but I think a lot of people would tend to give Penn State a little bit too much credit here. And I'll be really curious to see how they match up against a Kentucky team. Like I said, I know it's not the same team. I know this Kentucky team might be a little bit better than the Kentucky team we played last year. But still, um, this will be as close to a proxy matchup as we get. So I'll be really curious to see what happens here. You can run on Penn State. (laughs) They gave up an average of 170 yards per game this year. That bodes extremely well for Kentucky to be able to control this game, keep McSorley on the sidelines. And then, you know, they just got to get a couple stops with their, with their awesome D. I, um, it should be a big game for both teams. Like this is McSorley's last game. It's the citrus bowl. Like there should be no, like no lack of motivation here, but, um, I don't know. Like, I think I think everything you would look at on paper would tell you to pick pick Penn State, but I think there's I think there's a needle that that Kentucky can thread to win this game. Moving on to the Rose Bowl, uh, four o'clock Central, Washington and Ohio State. Um, great D from Washington, solid. I mean, Ohio State team that you know we saw. Just a couple weeks ago, a very, very, very talented team. Um, this will be interesting. I, I, to me, I don't know that Washington's offense is going to be able to generate enough points. And I think Ohio State is going to be able to find a way to score on Washington's D. I like the Buckeyes here. Would you guys t- tell me that I have, um, that I'm still in shock from the Big Ten Championship game if I if I told you that I thought this was one of the biggest mismatches of the bowl season. I think you are a hundred percent right. Is Washington even have a chance in this game? I think they're going to get throttled. I think they lose by forty. Yeah, I like Washington. Look at their resume. I don't even. Part of me still thinks Washington State is the best team in this conference, and the only reason they didn't run it up on Washington was because that game was played in a flipping snowstorm um, that just literally took away Washington State's ability to do anything. Um, that was not, I mean, that was just ludicrous. And the idea that that such a massive game came down to that. Now, I know, like, Washington has owned Washington State in the Apple Cup, but, like, whatever, fine, great. Okay, like, you played 
what at the end of the day was a middling SEC West team to start the season and you scored 16 points and then won, frankly, a bunch of close games in what we know is a mediocre conference. I mean, this team lost 12-10 to Cal. Um, I don't, I mean, and like, congratulations, you won your conference championship game 10-3. to Like, what? Um, I think, yeah, I think Ohio State's going to slaughter them. And then the final game of the bowl season before we hit the national championship game, uh, sorry, the college football playoff championship game or whatever the hell they're calling it these days, uh, the Sugar Bowl, Texas and Georgia in New Orleans. Um, Georgia's just better than Texas. I'm sorry. It's just Texas has had a great but do, season. But do they care? Well, they, they, but do they sure, care? Sure, sure. I don't. So, like, Texas, remember what everything I said about Oklahoma State? That All of that stuff is true about Texas, except Texas somehow managed to win more games. Like, I don't, like, you can get two different Texas teams. The Texas team that played Maryland loses by 60 to Georgia. Um, And then, like, but then there's this Texas team that beat Oklahoma once in a crazy shootout um, and has been in other shootouts. But it's like, I don't know. Texas has the, I mean, Texas beat Kansas by seven, like Georgia ain't beaten Kansas by seven. Um, and I don't know, like Texas, I feel like so much of the love that they've gotten this season is based on, you know, that win over Oklahoma. They beat USC back when that meant something. They beat TCU back when that meant something. Those are two bad teams. Um, and like, you look at like, like Baylor, congratulations, Texas Tech, yay. You beat Iowa State by 14. That's maybe one of their best wins. Um, and then Kansas by seven. I mean, right. I mean, it, it right. If Georgia sleepwalks through this game, fine. But Georgia is a total level above this Texas team. Allow me to quote one of our faves, Stuart Mandel, who, who said the following in his annual uh, bowl preview column. Given Kirby Smart emulates everything about Nick Saban, Texas fans should hope that includes Alabama's tradition of not getting up for consolation sugar bowls. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, but it's like for all that, Georgia's still in the thick of that three-team Georgia, Clemson, Alabama insane recruiting arms race. And a 12-win season doesn't exactly dent, dent your prospects too much. So um, I think they're... Uh, you know, winning the SEC East, putting up a 12-win season and thumping Texas in a bowl game gives them a lot of ammo heading into the next season, especially if they still have this pipe dream of keeping Justin Fields, which we'll see about that. Mm, not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, he's gone. I would say so, he's too. Gone. So that's the bowl slate. Um, you know, we talk, talked about every single one. Yeah, you know, we will be back next week to recap the Holiday Bowl. Uh, talk about the playoffs, uh, talk about the national championship game. Um, anything else to, to talk about before we put a bow on this one, boys? One thing that I'll mention, I teased it last week. I'm still in the midst of working on what is becoming just a beast of a, of a story to go up on the website. It is going to be something that you core fans are, are just going to consume like crazy when it, when I finally have it done. But uh, we're still working on it, so don't worry. It's still in the pipeline, and it, it'll get to you eventually. Most likely, you know, it may be just post-bowl season, but it'll be something where you're you're heading into that horrible after-college football season withdrawal. You need a little fix, and uh, and we'll be here for you. 
We'll be here for you uh, with the articles. We'll be here for you on the pod. You know, we're not going anywhere. Um, we got a lot of basketball season to talk about. So just because football season is winding down does not mean the Westlaw Pirates are going anywhere. So, yeah, for, for, you know, we've picked up as we do every season, we've picked up a lot of new listeners this year. And, you know, if you're looking at these numbers, there's a reason we're closing in on like episode 380, not counting all of our summer previews. We don't take that many weeks off. So when you're, when you're looking to get through all the doldrums outside of football season, we will be here for you just about every week. And if you have something you want us to talk about or delve into or explore or a question or a frustration or whatever, holler. Con- yeah, contact uh, us, especially in the spring. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're, we're all super happy to dive deep on, on subjects we don't know uh, anything about and come up with some some interesting angles and perspectives and stats to talk about so throw 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 your ideas our way we are game and that'll just about wrap it up for this week uh head to our website westlawpirates.com where you can leave comments and questions find us on facebook find us on twitter at westlaw pirates call our voicemail line 847-231-2287 that's 847-231-CATS and email the show westlawpirates at gmail.com Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics and look for us in the West Lot of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Scasbo, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.